Hey yo, my name is Big Lou and you are now listening to Go Produce. We're the show that explores how music industry professionals turn their passions into profit. If you want to learn how to build a career around NPCs, then this episode is for you. Okay, okay. Thank you, Factor, for funding part of this initiative. Today's theme is... What are the steps to creating an innovative product that leads to touring the world for over 15 years? Our guest for today is Mr. Fresh Kills. He is one wizard on the MPC. From behind the boards to the stage, there is not a spot of ground Fresh Kills' prolific career hasn't touched. His prowess on the MPC has seen him share the stage with many big-name artists like Nas, Jesse Reyes, as well as the best of the underground, winning over fans and and beat battle competitions with his signature ownership. The Toronto-based Sound Battle Royale champion, Goldie Awards finalist, with multiple Juno nominations and high-profile collaborations and performances, still has not reached his ceilings, folks. With momentum and accolades growing each year, Fresh Kills is poised for a sound system takeover unlike we've ever seen before. Ladies and gentlemen, I bring you Fresh Kills. Thanks for having me, man. (laughs) Don't get too excited. Come on. (laughs) Ooh, we can't see you. Did you say something? No, I'm just here. Thanks for having me, oh, man. I appreciate perfect. it. I said, don't get too excited. You know, just it's a long road, right? Let's, it's a long uh... Let's see what we can provide. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here, though. And I want you Cheers. to know that we do very much appreciate your time. So let's make the most of this and go produce. <laughs> Wee! Woo! Our first segment today is called The Basics. Okay, so now that we're nice and warmed up, the basics is designed to get everyone on the same page so that we move through the rest of this episode together. Make sense? Mm-hmm. Let's do right. it. Kills, what is your first musical memory? Uh, Chantilly Lace by the Big Bopper. Uh, it was a record that I demanded. Apparently, I demanded to hear it before I went to bed every night, and my folks um, would play it for me. And I don't know if you... I mean. You're not going to know that record offhand, but it's a really whimsical. It's almost like he's doing stand-up comedy and talking throughout the whole thing. So it was like a really kind of funny record. Huh. Um, and yeah, like I was like literally in a in a playpen or something, and I remember, I remember going to bed to that record at that age, eh? And you by request something. I was requesting records at that point. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. peculiar. And yeah. When you found the first, like, what, okay, so you had that record on spin. What led from, what led after that? Was it just, okay, that's the record player and it just plays, or curiosity got you? Uh, a lot of things in between. I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like, um, it wasn't really until, you know, like high school, like later on that I, you know, I got interested in actually, you know, doing it. Like, I was requesting records like a, like a, like a, a drunk girl at a club, you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> for a long time, I still yeah. do that. And I'm actually, ironically, I'm a terrible DJ. Like I can't spin to save my life. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. Like I just, uh, I got in, you know, I got into stuff later. I, I definitely, you know, yeah. I grew my hair out. I was a long haired hippie guitar player in, fair, fair, in fair. high school. And yeah. That's jokes. Okay. So what is the first lesson that the industry taught you when you did enter it? Oh man. Um, or even before when you're no, it was brutal. Wet. No, no, no. This, this is I, it, terrible. It was terrible. I came in at a really horrible time. Um, 
the first year was was amazing in that um when I started like I when I came out of school at the Harris Institute I got a dream internship with K-Cut who um is a legendary producer from he was in originally in the group the main source with large professor who did a lot of records for Nas and other people and uh he had produced a lot of records like he produced uh Human Nature by Madonna he'd produced for you know he'd produced for tons of people and so it was a really big honor but it was a really tough year and it was like as exciting as it was I I think what did it teach me definitely taught me like the fear like I I was gripped with like the fear that kept me on the right kind of you know like everyone was trying to get high in the studio and I I couldn't do it like I just got too nervous I was like I need to I need to hold this down and so there was this like um it was almost like a balancing it sort of balanced me out because I got thrown into the fire really early like right my, my internship was with a platinum selling producer it was like whoa I was in over my head and so that whole time it's like you're I was just forced to to really like just be as you know as um as professional as I could d- yeah. despite how green I was you know 100% yeah. every day yeah that is, that is a quick way to start learning I I came in at a really bad time I mean in the early 2000s when I started MP3 downloading had destroyed the sales the music music sales business yeah. essentially yeah. Five majors became four. You know, Sony, BMG combined. Everyone at BMG lost their jobs. All of a sudden, you go from, you know, multiple rap records or, you know, whatever you want to call it, R&B records, rap records, uh, platinum in a year to, like, there were only five, then there were only three, and then the Carter three was the only platinum rap record of that year, and then there were none. There were none until Hey Ya, which... Hey, I was not even really a rap record if you think about it, right? And sure. that that was right when the industry was trying to catch up. And it was like, can we make singles? Like Apple was like, they were like, can we make, how many singles could be considered a record? Because it sold 12 million singles. Well, how many records is that? They were trying to figure it out. So mm. the industry was trying to catch up. But it was a really bad time. If you're only as good as your last hit record, and all of a sudden there are no more hit records, you know, the the urban is a is not a great term, but the urban wing of the Canadian wing of one of the five majors, like how much clout do they have? How much budget do they have? What can they do? Like nothing. So yeah, good point. it was a really, really tough time. And I saw a lot of really, there was a really, a lot of terrible experiences during that time. And for not just for me, but for a lot of people, it was really, really tough. It was a change. The DIY thing was changing and yeah. um, you know, just, it was a real <laughs> upheaval. So there was a lot of, you know, really tough tough times you know when so i started especially i am quite the curious individual and i do want to dive in a little bit further into those tough times but as i did some research i did realize that you had <laughs> had those so i put them a little bit further into the episode sure but, yeah uh, we'll get to them be be aware that we will be touching they on that never again. leave me yes awesome. <laughs> Obviously, i'm haunted everyone that's alive <laughs> has had one interesting 2020 so far but mm. um we don't want to go too much into covid i just want to know because of that, are there any other firsts that you are pursuing, perhaps? Firsts? Yes. I mean, hilariously enough, I'm I'm probably putting out my first solo record um, in the new year, that, and that's been like a cloud over me for a long time. Like, I've done so much collaborating, and I'm a collaborator by nature. I'm a producer and engineer, and those are those aren't uh, you know those are s- service industries in a certain way, service roles, you know, yeah. and so. 
you know, being the transition to being an artist has always been a, a tough one for me. And so that's finally starting to happen and I'm scared um, of it. And I'm, it's definitely like um, there's growing pains that come along with it, you know? So it's nice. To, it's nice when you're in a group or, you know, you can, you can deflect responsibilities. You can, I'm not saying you can slack off, but it's like, you're greater than the sum of your parts. It's like, you know, but yeah. when it's all on you, it's tough. And not to mention, it's like, you know, being in the studio, working on a solo record by yourself, it's not really that fun. It's like, you want to work with people like that music is collaboration. It's jamming. It's, it's, you know, it's about combining sounds and people Giving and cultures and yeah, there's, yeah. there's, it's, it's what it's about. So it's sort of antithetical in some senses for me in, in a lot of ways. So that'll be a first, but I guess that'll be 2021, I guess, but oh, well, it we're coming to, to it. today first, but something <laughs> we're coming to it. working towards. Yeah. And I like that you <laughs> yeah. shared that you are a little bit nervous because despite all of your petrified you know, accolades and, Petri- and experiences, like, like okay. paralyzed with fear, like absolutely shaken to the core <laughs> of my being for real. That's for wild. Real. That's wild. Very cool. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. And I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. very keen to see how the launch goes. I will be as much of a part of it and make sure to let us know. So nah, don't worry about it. it. Nah, don't worry about it. It's nah. Cool. It's cool. <laughs> I actually don't want you to listen to it. <laughs> Nothing to see here. Yeah. <laughs> keep it moving. Keep it moving. That's awesome. Perfect. Yeah. You've survived the basics. You feeling good? Basic training, yeah. I'm here. Basic training, like nothing, like nothing. GI kills, trying to be a Navy SEAL. Let's go. What's next? What's next? You're not even sweating. (laughs) Our next segment we got is What's Your Take? I love this one. I love everyone. In What's Your Take, I'm going to be throwing three points that address kind of semi-ridiculous perspectives. And okay. we just want your opinion. Let's do it. Beautiful. Watching hip-hop shows are the worst live music to see. What's your take? I agree. And uh, it's why I do what I do. It's it's why I got on the on the MPC, because I was going to these shows and it, you know, it was like guys were... Just it was just a, a guy would bring a CD and they he would just rap over a CD and I'm like this is just karaoke. You have to be a really it's not to say that it's not it's impossible but you got to be a really incredible performer to be able to pull off a show with just you and backing tracks, especially if there's like lyrics in the backing tracks. Let's not go there. Um, but yeah, that's hey. just brutal. Um, and so for me, I wanted to bring something to the live hip hop show that wasn't there. You know, my 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 MPC finger drumming and the live beats thing was a a direct response to the fact that hip hop shows to me kind of sucked. And, um, especially if there wasn't a DJ, I mean, at least have a DJ scratching or something, like, give me something, you know? Yeah. Like at least back in the day, guys would have, if they were, if they were, if they were lip syncing, at least they would have dancers or something like, give me something, you know? And then you go to, you go see the roots and you're just like, Whoa, like this is what it can be. You know, right. um, right. so uh, yeah. But what about for, yeah. for what about backing tracks for hooks? Is that frowned upon as well? Well, I don't frown upon anything per se. I don't judge anyone. There's, you know, I've seen people pull off, you know, things different, different things. That's I'm not true. trying to judge yeah. anybody, and I'm I'm definitely I'm for the kids. You know, the the kids are gonna win. I'm with them, like whatever they want to do, um, but. Yeah, I mean, there are better ways to go about things. There are, 
there are ways to achieve. I mean, the medium's the message, you know, the medium's really the message. So it's like, if you're, if you're on television and doing a performance, backing track's probably a good idea, right? Um, if you're in a, if you're in an arena where, and you haven't had a sound check and like the monitoring's really rough and crazy, maybe go with the backing tracks. There are reasons for certain things and different situations require different solutions. So, um, you know, like if I'm at a rap show, I want to see you rap though. You know what I mean? Um, that's just me. That's a good point. Yeah. How, how would you suggest beginning rappers to improve on this if they can't yet, I don't want to say afford a DJ or a hype man because you can find friends that do this with you. Uh, but how can they develop this this showmanship, if you will, before they just do a glorified karaoke? Um, um, I think I think practicing is the key, and um, really curating your set. I mean, you can you can show up with a USB stick, and as long as the backing tracks are really well curated, like with breaks, maybe with some funny turnarounds, um, call and response, um, just the more prepared you are, you know, you can, you can wow a crowd with really well curated backing tracks. Um, you know, like we used to do things like, you know, if we, if we had a, if we were performing a song, we had this whole thing where we would never, we would, we would, if we were going to hit the second verse, like we'd do the first verse, the hook, and then we would hit the second verse and we would switch in and put a DJ premiere beat in the same key and tempo and just smack them out the head, but not skip a beat, like just keep going. And it would just blow people's minds. Like it was just this crazy crowd response thing um, that worked, you know, like ghetto socks, for example, he would play, um, I want to know what love is. Mm -hmm. And he would just, pour a bottle of water on his face and it was like the funniest craziest thing for him to do on stage and it's like um there are a lot of ways it's not it's not just about being able to rap or not um connecting with an audience involves a whole lot of different things um a guru a live guru once told me that in order you have to risk rejection to make connection with a crowd so the more you can bear your soul as much as you're comfortable to do um, the the better off, the more you're going to connect with a crowd. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to rap really well. You know, you could have a really heartfelt song about your mom. You know, Tupac did it, and it was like a crowd pleaser at his shows forever. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there, there there's a lot there's a lot of things involved, right? So, and there's a lot of ways. There's a lot of ways to connect with a crowd and have a good show if it's just you and your backing tracks, you know? Have you found any strategy to be most effective for yourself personally? I find, for example, filming myself or practicing into a mirror to be very beneficial. Yeah, I, I definitely, um, I definitely think you should try to film yourself. That's helpful. Um, I mean, I'm a, you know, I, I'm so nervous on stage. Like even now, like even t- like I've done thousands of shows, but I'm so nervous on stage. The only way that I feel comfortable on stage is if I've practiced like till my fingers bleed kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm not talking about practicing songs. I'm talking about like making sure that you're in the same position that you're going to be in when you're on stage. Cause there's, there's so many things you can't control at a show, especially when you're yep. on tour, independent tour, you can't control the lighting. You can't control the sound. You can't control the monitoring. You can't control the, you know, the height of the stage. You can't, you can't control anything. So the, you've got to control all the things that you can control. And that is like, 
if you show up with a USB stick and there's no one to play it, like you've got to be prepared for all these eventualities. So, um, you know, if I could, if I could bring the tough thing for me with the NPC was that I couldn't bring a stand all the time. And that yeah. every show was like jury rigging and taping things together to try to get it to the right height. And, Oof. um, it was really hard for a long time trying to figure that stuff out because every night was different. Um, but you know, you just, you practice as much as you can. Also practicing, um, practicing your spiels too, practicing your in-between stuff. Uh, so important. huge, huge. And obviously directing people to the merch table, like how many times I've just wanted to kick myself in the ass because I did a whole show. I smashed a show and I forgot to do that. I was, Hey, I'm going to the merch table. Come hang out. Yeah. Um, and the th- that's the thing. The reason why you got to practice your spiels in between songs too is when, especially, especially if the show's good, because if you're in front of a lot of people, that has a way of like mesmerizing. Like you'll, you know, you can be sort of swept away by a crowd in a way um, where if, if energy's crazy, you're going to get off your game plan. It's going to be really easy to get dissuaded from your game plan. What's your take on this? You've got a very unique sound, a very unique technique and therefore a unique product. How did this come about? Um, well, it, the, the one key thing about it starting was I, I couldn't afford an MPC for a long time. Um, they were expensive and I just never had the money for it. And I started to, but I started to work in studios that had them. And so I had to learn how to use them. Um, and uh, I worked in studios where producers would come in and they would be there for a week and they would just produce beats and I would have to make sure, we would have to make sure they had everything they needed. And then, for example, one of my first jobs was like, I'd have to, I had to like sync Pro Tools to the MPC to dump the beats. That was my first job was dumping the beats and arranging and mixing everything. And um, so I had to learn how to use one, but I never owned one. And then when I finally got one, this is the key mo- thing is that I didn't need it to make beats. I'd already been making beats like, in logic and and cool edit and whatever um and so when i got it i didn't need it to make beats i I wasn't using it to make beats i was using it to like i thought of it as an instrument i thought of it as like oh this is like a cool different way to approach the sound and i can kind of tap these things out and i can kind of get and it's a way to achieve different stuff so for example if you were to take if you were to chop up like a loop or whatever and you were to point and click you know, if you were in free loops and you're pointing and clicking different chops in a two-bar sequence versus if you're playing it on the pad, you're going to come up with different patterns, right? You're, the interface is going to influence what comes out. Um, and so I just thought of it like that. I just thought of it as like, this is an interesting interface way to interface in the music. And, um, and it took me a while. I was making garbage beats on the MPC at first when I first got yeah. it because it's like a step back. You're learning, you're kind of relearning how to get everything that you, you were used to getting before. Right, right, right. Uh, the, the, you know, the results. And so it took a while, but I was, I ended up, you know, it took about a year, started to get into a groove. And then, um, my friend Les, and I was, I was, I developed this little drumming technique because I wanted to like, I, I wanted to be able to play out the drums. I hated the whole like sequence, the hi hat, sequence, the kick, sequence, the snare. <laughs> like, it was just like, oh, like, why would I even have these pads? Like, what's the point? Yeah. Um, and uh, so I was sort of developing this little style, and then my buddy, more or less, um, good friend, I was producing some records for him, and he had a re- release show coming up. And I said, hey, listen, man, you know, like, I'm doing all this weird stuff in the MPC. You want to check it out? You want to try doing something live? Um, and I remember going over to his house, and I had prepared some, like, cool little 
things that I could do. And when he saw what was possible, he got really excited. And I was, I was sort of relieved because as an MC, having a backing track on is so much easier. It, it's, it's so much more insurance against anything screwing up. You know, it's like yep. adding me was a risk. Um, and, and a risk that like, and frankly, I totally screwed up shows like a hundred percent. I did a bunch of times. <laughs> it happens. Oh man. But the thing about that that's interesting is there's a way different reaction if the crowd knows that you're, if, if you screw up, they know it's real. And what, what it took me a long time, and we're getting off topic, but what that, what it took a lot longer for me to realize was, because I used to get stepped to, I would get stepped to for faking. Like people didn't believe that I was really? doing what I was doing. And it was because I got so obsessed with practicing and making it look good um, that it didn't seem real. Like it didn't seem like I could actually do it. And and whatever, I'm not trying to, you know, no, that's big awesome. myself up. That's the, that's the true art to it. Make but it seems seamless. Right. But, but the thing is what I began to realize was it was so important for me to not screw up per se, but do something off to reveal, like, you got to know, you know, there's almost there's something to like, you got to see Oz behind the curtain a little bit. It's like, yeah, there's there's a little bit of that you got to realize because you won't necessarily believe the whole the whole thing. Um, that's very that's very interesting. It, People actually yeah. like gave you beef for 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 faking. I got headbutted in the face. Oh, in that's a club, so funny. In a club, by a guy who was really mad that I had that I was you know quote unquote faking. Yeah, wow. that's I mean it. I got stepped to, and that was in Portland, Maine. I got stepped to in Green Bay, Wisconsin one night. I, I came off stage, and I had done my Led Zeppelin routine, and I do, like, a little guitar solo where I end up playing the NPC with my face. And, um, like, all these Jimmy Page licks that I chopped up, and the guy stepped to me, and he was like, you're disrespecting Jimmy Page. And I was like, bro, if anything, like, I, this is a tribute to him. Like, what are you talking about? But of course, you know, you're in, so, you're in someone else's town, you know, you, yeah. you know, so you're humble, but, um, yeah, there's yeah. something to, there's something to that. So the point, the point I'm making was that was a breakthrough that show, but, but less who's a good friend who I actually talked to today. He's a dear friend of mine taking a chance with me to do this thing on stage and to like do it with me and allow me to like handle things back there, you know, mm -hmm. as he was front, yeah. front stage. Um, he, that was the big turning oh, point. Yeah, awesome. he allowed you to he allowed you the room to make mistakes and to grow from it. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, and not just that, but like ambitious. Like he, we got really ambitious. Like it wasn't just that he allowed me to 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 do the backing tracks. It was like we got nuts. Like there, one of the things that we used to do was there was a moment in the set where he would start beatboxing and I would hit this section where his voice would go over top of the beat and he's he's beatboxing under his own acapella and he yeah. seamlessly switches from rapping to beatboxing under his acapella to rapping again seamlessly in a show wow and it was like we pulled that off and it, i just remember being like this is this is madness like i don't even know if people know what just happened yeah. but man was it wild to be on stage just doing it you know like yeah i had to count i remember i had to count 14 bars for some reason it was 14 bars in less why would you do that to me counting 14 bars it's so counterintuitive and i had to hit the pad on the 14 and switch the sequence it was it was such a gnarly switch thing to That's do odd. but anyway but very it was cool. fun it was super fun you know very cool 
what did you change about your sets and performance to make it to the big stages? Um, well, the, the, the where are my the really successful musical sets and the routines came out of the battle and the battles that I was in. Um, hands down, that was I I had developed all the techniques I needed to like perform beats live, but when I had to battle other people that that changed the game entirely because I went into like I went into battle mode and the thing is when you're when I went into the one of my first battles I didn't know what to do I was like what am, what, what am I supposed to do in a battle like what am I where am I drawing from here what are my what's a live beat battle like like there really weren't a whole lot of live beat battles to look at mm-hmm. and figure out what to do and I you know I came up as a, such a huge turntable fan, like turntablist fan, um, yeah. a fan of the DMCs, really good friends with tons of DJs, like from Scratch Bastard to Tilo to Vect. Um, and I, so I started doing, you know, vinyl, essentially doing turntablist battle routines on an MPC. That was, and you could actually, if you look at some of my early routines too, that's what they are. They really are like, you know, like I'm dissing people. Like I'm, I'm coming at you. It's I'm not just playing a really dope beat. I'm like, I'm narrating it and I'm animated and yeah. I'm joking around and I'm calling you out. And, you know, and then also the thing was being in front of judges, not just being in front of a crowd, but being in front of like Jake one is sitting there with a notepad, like staring, staring at you. Staring at you. Yeah. yeah. Like, fuck. Can I swear on this show? Sure. Do whatever you like. Like, fuck me though. That was like <laughs> serious pressure. Like, when I did the Goldie Awards, I mean, I don't know if you can imagine this kind of pressure. They fly me to New York. So I make top eight, right, in my submissions. I make top eight. I'm flown to New York. I'm at, I'm backstage with, like, literally name them. They're there. Like, A-Track, Manny Fresh, Just Blaze, Diplo, um, Dave East. Um, like, it was just, like... It was so crazy, Come and on now. and yeah. you're in front of you're in, so you're in front of two you have two minutes. You're in front of two thousand people at Brooklyn Steel, and Diplo is sitting right there, and Manny Fresh and Just Blaze like they're they're judging me, and I'm like, the pressure of that situation, like I'm I'm literally <laughs> breathless <laughs> thinking about it. Like it's, it was really. <laughs> <laughs> is I mean, that how it felt. <laughs> You know what? It was fun, but I I would never want to do it again. Like it was, I didn't sleep for a week, like literally did not sleep for the five days leading up, you know, just killing myself trying to make that thing. But the other reason why I'm saying that, you know, in answer to your original question, I'm sorry to babble on, but. (laughs) That's a fun story. No, those, those things really honed me into like, I've got to like, how do I blow Jake one's mind? I mean, that's. That's a that's a level of like thinking about your set that is different from, you know, how do I get girls dancing or, you know, how do I connect yeah. with a crowd or it's like, how do I blow away one of the best producers in the game's mind? Like, how do I how do I get a 10 from him? You yeah. know, um, how do I do like the Vince Carter between the leg? Like, how do I it's over? Like, how do I get that? Yeah. Um, Amateur thinking versus professional thinking. Yeah, and, and and I guess the other thing, the last thing I'll say is thinking about it backwards, like reverse engineering it from, um, like 
what is the person in the crowd want? Like, what are they, you know, not like, I think a lot of people get caught up in like, Ooh, I can finger drum, watch me finger drum. Right. As opposed to, you know, setting it up and, 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 you know, like I don't finger, I finger drum, I could finger drum my whole set, but you get bored two songs in it's, you got to set it up. You got to draw people in. You got to like, you know, how do you, how do you get the reaction? You know, how do you narrate it? Um, and it was, it was reverse engineering it from, from the crowd's perspective and from a judge's perspective that really shifted everything. Cause, and that's again, last, sorry, last thing I'll say, I swear to God, I'm up on coffee. You got me on coffee. Um, is, uh, a lot of people, art is giving. Like art is the direction of art is this way, not yeah. this way, right? And we all, a lot of us get caught up in like, how do I get people to look at me? How do I get? It's like no, it's like the scene from Almost Famous. How do you get that guy off? How, there's a guy in the crowd that's not getting off. How I? How do you get him off? I find that guy and I get. I make sure he gets off. You know what I mean? Like that's that's a different mentality. Yes, so it's a, it's a switch. It's a switch. Not like after it. the show, during the show, Louis. Hey, no judgment over here. <laughs> I like that. We made it very nicely through our <laughs> What's Yo take. We've got one more segment tonight. You All ready right. to go? I am. I'll try to keep it more brief for you. Hey, we're having a good time. I think it's by the sounds of it, you're having a good time too. I'm doing all right. Yeah. But now, clear the air. <laughs> All right, all right, all right. We made it to the final segment, clear the air. What we're going to be doing at this, you ready for this? There's only one way to find out. Okay, here we go. Only one way to find out, yes. So what we're going to do with clear the air is I'm going to throw three different topics to you, and I want your opinion so that all of our listeners can really extract education from here. That's the focus of this. Okay. Cool. All right. Ooh. I like to start this segment off with a guest or one of our audience members actually recorded a question for you. So I'm just going to pull it up here and I'll play it. So out of all your festival appearances and, you know, events where you shared stages with huge artists, I'd love to know which are most memorable. Um, it's a hands down. There's a hands down one for me. Um, I did a show at, I started going and doing the festival circuit out West uh, about six years ago. And I was fortunate enough to get booked to play Shambhala, which uh, is a really just, it's, it's always ranked as one of the top 10 festivals in the world. It's absolutely. um, I mean, I'm super spoiled because in a way I I didn't, I didn't go to a lot of other festivals before I went to Sham. So going there was just like, Oh my God. Like this is, you know, I don't know anything else. So, you know, I, but I was blown away and I can uh, only imagine. I mean, I've heard fantastic things about that. I mean, it is, it completely, it changed my life. It absolutely changed my life without question. Um, but this one year that I went, so the first year I went, I had a short set, did okay. Um, second year, I, I helped uh, some other, some friends of friends get into the artist camp and we were chilling out and it was a, it was a, it was a few girlfriends of a friend of mine. And they were thanking me. They were like, oh, you know, because being the artist camp is just a great spot because you're close to everything and you get you can get bands, wristbands and stuff, blah, 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 blah. And they were thanking me and they were like, you know, if you need anything, you, you know, let us know if there's anything you need. 
And as a total joke, like absolutely just out of the, I just made it up. I didn't know anything. I just said, well, a choreographed dance routine would be great. Um, I have no idea why I said it. I had no idea that she was a dancer. Turns out she and her other friends are part of this like incredible four woman dance crew out of Boise, Idaho called Corvette. And they're yeah. like phenomenal. Like they're, they're freaking world-class. And they were like, of course, no problem. I'm like, what? Like, come on. And, and so we're like, okay. So <laughs> Saturday, I hit the village stage Saturday and they spent two days working on, I had a Michael Jackson remix um, that I was going to do and I had a recording of it and they worked on the, they worked on a routine, dance routine for two days. So I hit the stage and like, the, the the year before I'd done like a couple routines, like I was, I wasn't, you know, I was just a couple little things, but I had a full set for that year. And, uh, I went on stage and like completely, I don't know how to describe it, man. Like bodied, bodied 2000 people, like bodied them. Like I had four dancers. I had a gold chain. I was, you know, I was just, and the thing is too, it's like on the, um, on those speaker systems too, um, on the PK sound, you know, like you hit a kick drum on that thing and you're just like, like it's the power of it is crazy. And being able to, Oh man. So absolutely destroyed that stage. And it was to the point where I started noticing that people came, started coming to my other West coast shows, word of mouth had spread about my performance. Um, and it just felt incredible. But then I came off stage and this guy, approaches me and he's covered in tattoos and he's like he's like yo i've been coming to this festival for like 20 years man and like dude like you blew my mind and like this is the best show i've ever seen like dude like oh my god like you're on tour and i was like yeah and he's like well like you know how much how much to like how much to buy your whole crew for my yacht party next weekend and i the the this is you know the biggest number that i could think of at the time was five thousand dollars so i which is so stupid so I, I said, I said five thought, and he's like, done. And, you know, I, to this day, I wonder what number I could have said to him that he would have accepted. And of course, my crew at the time were like, five grand, man. Like, okay, cool. But like, <laughs> kills. You See, this is why know. you have a manager. This is why you have a manager. You know? That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. Lesson learned. But I mean, yeah. It wasn't necessarily a low after the experience at Trombola because you did get work from it. Yeah, I mean, you talk about, people talk about being on the road and building markets and it's harder and harder these days. And so like to see markets build like from one show, like that's what you hope. You you hope that you kind of can strategize a good show in front of the right people, whatever that means, um, and that it'll help build things out. But but the funny thing about that whole experience, though, is like there was this doorway to another world that was opening up for me. It was like, do I want to be like a 40 something, you know, sandal wearing, robe wearing, drug addled, you know, just young women all over the place kind of th- like, do I want to like emerge from my, in my 50s and like confused and single and not knowing what the hell happened? You know, and I just I had to like I had to slow it down. I had to stop because I was like, I got to grow up. These grays are coming yeah. in. These grays are coming in nice. So I got to, you know, Silver I got to earn them. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think I'll ever have gray hairs. <laughs> what a shame. Oh. One moment. <laughs> I do have a question about the village. You mentioned performing on the village. 
I want you to know, or I want to ask, do you think that is the best stage at Shambhala in your eyes? Um, it's not my favorite, but it is a special place in that, you know, they used to call it Ewok Village because it was built off of the Star Wars, you know, Ewok, uh, you know, Ewok home in the trees, okay, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a really special place. I really love the Grove. I feel like I've I've probably had more religious experiences at the Grove than I have at uh, well, because you know the village stage ends up being like the really hard dubstep and drum and bass um, on the big nights, and so you know I can only stand so much of that. You know, I love I do love it, but it's like um, you know uh, Fractal Forest. There's something about that place too that's crazy. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> that whole place is so magical. Like everywhere yeah. you go, you're like, you're wandering around and there's like, there's people like, you know, they have a circle of symbols and you can sit in the middle and they like gongs and they just, they, they vibrate energy through you just as like a recharge. And you're like, what? Like, that's awesome. You just line up that's and awesome. do it. You're like, what? Like this, this place, the place is just so unbelievable. Yeah. Let's go to somewhere a little bit more bleak. Moving to Toronto, you mentioned was the worst year of your life followed by the best year of your life. And we started talking about that yeah. earlier, but, uh, what specifically was so difficult about that? Well, when I left Halifax, I had I'd been running my home studio uh, for about a year, eighteen months, and I we had a little crew. You know, we were building things. I was recording everything. Like I, I was recording bluegrass bands and punk bands and reggae groups, and you know, doing like computer game overdubs and hip hop, and so it was a really good time and. You know, I had this really nice studio. I was a nice studio, but I had like this little setup and it, was, and it was going. And so, but I kind of wanted to like, I needed to go where the action was, right? So when yeah. I left, I kind of uprooted a lot of things. And even amongst some of my closer friends, there was a bit of resentment. So that was hard because they kind of thought I was, you know, deserting them in some sense. Um, so there was, there was that tension. And also I came to Toronto and I went to the Harris Institute and I was really excited when I went because I was like, you know, there's going to be all these like-minded individuals, you know, I'm finally going to be at school that I want to be at, like learning stuff I want to learn. You know, I was, I was really excited about that. And the Harris Institute's great, but the people that I was in the classroom with, I didn't really connect. It was like, I don't know. It was like, everybody was, you know, there were people that were like, well, I was going to go to law school, but this seemed more fun. There mm. were got people getting high every class. Um, you know, and I'm coming out of like essentially almost flunking out of university, like with this last chance to kind of like, I know what I have to do. I've got to nail this. You know, this is like, this is what I want to do. Um, so I kind of came in a lot more focused. My friend, my, my roommate, his dad, his father died two weeks after moving in, like suddenly and tragically. Um, and it so it was just like it was a slog. I was doing Harris Institute seventeen classes a semester, so seventeen midterms, seventeen final <laughs> exams. Like it was a shit show, man. Like people were freaking the fuck out, and you know, I was losing my shit. I was losing my mind. It was it was really tough. It was a tough, tough year. Um, yeah, followed by it, one of your best years. Well, yeah. I mean, when I got the internship with K Cut, it was so funny because. You know, a lot of my Halifax friends, not a lot of my Halifax friends, but a few key people who, you know, were like, well, you're going to go to Toronto and you're going to get distracted and you're going to, you know, you're not going to follow through on the things we were building and stuff. Um, not in a mean way, but just like concerns about it. And when I got out of school and I was kind of like, I was like, listen, guys, let me work. Like, just 
give me, you know, let me work on this. Like, give me a second here, you know? Um, and then coming out of school and getting an internship with K-Cut, who is like a Canadian legend, yeah, that huge. vindicated everything. All of a sudden, everyone was like, holy oh, shit, Kills shit. is on it. And like, <laughs> there was a hot, there was like a hot minute where I literally, I, I couldn't pay for breakfast in Halifax. Like, I was what they called Halle Famous for like eight months. Yeah. Where like I could walk into any club I wanted. Like it was just it was really funny. Like Ghetto Socks and I were like we're we're kind of royalty for a half second. Um so and because and everything shifted, right? Everything shifted yeah. right there because it plugged me in and that year was really, really exciting. And I mean I got to, you know, I got to work with Ali Shaheed Muhammad from Tribe Called Quest. I got to work with um Huge. Ringo from um Ringo, who produced Buster Rhymes' Wuha and, and Erica Badu's first record. And um, I was in the studio, like, I I was in the studio with Doc McKinney, who's, you know, uh, go, went on to The weekend and other, you know, everything. And he's, he's a genius. Um, and that was the point. You know, I wanted to go where the action was. It's like, I love Halifax, but, you know, it's like, if you're serious about what doing something that you want to do i mean i probably mm. should have gone to new york at some point or whatever like you go where the best are doing it and you cut your teeth that's that's yeah. what you have to do in life you you know, you, US, yeah yeah you want to be the best yeah. now i didn't want to be the best engineer and the best producer but tr i knew toronto was a better place to be for what i wanted to do and it clearly was yeah you know right decision yeah. sacrifice but the right decision are you still ever in touch with k-cut is he a mentor yeah. today yeah actually awesome. he, ca he came by a couple months ago because one of the things was when I was interning for him, he um, he didn't have a lot of money to pay me. And so I was interning and I was like, I was really hand to mouth for a while. And so he would try to help me out. And one of the things he would do is he would let me take records home because he has an insane record collection. So he would let me take records home and sample them. That was kind of like one of the things he'd be like, yeah, no problem. And when we stopped, when, when I left that studio, I ended up with some of his records still and I had them for so long and he actually came by to pick them up a couple months ago. So oh, it was nice. good, you know? Uh yeah. I like when the relationships like that can flourish over time. It's very cool. For sure. But now that you're mentioning sampling, can you clear the air on sampling as an art form as it may not always be, be seen that way? Yeah, I mean, sampling is collage. Sampling is... Um, uh, That's a very cool way to put it. Sampling is... I mean, if you read... No, if you read... If you read political science or you read philosophy or you read novels, they're they're... Well, especially if you read political science or philosophy, they're mixing and matching different points of view. And, you know, it's um, you're pulling influences from everyone. I mean, OK, like Led Zeppelin wasn't sampling um, Willie Dixon, but like they sure as hell, you know, interpolated a lot of his stuff, you know, like. So, you know, what is sampling is a big deal. Why? Because it's like it's wholesale and the. It's just a big deal because the technology makes it so, so wholesale, right? The technology makes the totality of the lift too real, you know, but it's yeah. no less real. It, it's no less of a, of a lift than, you know, you, you know, the, the idea that we're standing on the shoulders of giants from of the past. I mean, that's, that's how culture works. That's how art moves forward. That's how thought, that's how science works. You know, so yeah. um, build on what is or what was. Yeah, and well, and there's that, but there's also like, you know, sampling. You know, in a lot of ways, like you know, a, for example, a DJ is a, a DJ is a curator, right? A DJ curates a set, 
Um, and a producer, you're curating the same way. I mean, it's you're you're curating sounds from other places. Whether you're making them or not, you're pulling you're you're pulling things from other places together. Um, and it's an incredibly deep creative well to to pull from. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I can't demonstrate it, but but you know, I I firmly believe that I've been doing it for years. You know, um, I actually got off. I got asked to go to Osgood uh, Osgood um, Hall, which is the law school here in Toronto, and they wanted me to yeah. do a they wanted me to do a, a presentation on sampling, and I was like. That's like going in the lion's den, you know. It's like, <laughs> I was like, "Uh oh, these yeah, these yeah. motherfuckers are trying to. They're on the come up, man. They're looking for. They're looking for like a, you know, they're looking for a, a cover story law lawsuit that they can write. No, um, yeah. no, <laughs> but but details that they can get you on. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's me making a joke about like you know like what I hold my, you know, if I if I would I put my feet to the fire, with with what I'm saying, and I and I would, I absolutely would, um. So yeah, I I believe it's cool. an art form. It is what it is, and yeah, yeah. you're not gonna how convince does, me otherwise. Well, I cut you off. No, how no. does how does copyright or royalties work when you sample? Uh, well, uh, I mean, it depends. It depends on so many things. I mean, they don't. They generally don't work. Um. In uh, so for example, I mean, nobody would care. Like there would not be sampling laws that anyone would give a shit about if there wasn't money to be made. So, you know, how do they work? Well, they work in order to leverage, you know, uh, leverage uh, legislation into making money for people. Um, now, that's now it's on the one hand. On the other hand, it works in that the, you know, the original uh, owner of the intellectual property is paid for the use of their intellectual property and something else, which makes sense um and um i mean how does it work you know people used to ask me how long of how how long is the sound you know is there like if it's less than two seconds is it okay it's like no it's like a noise complaint if 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 they notice it and it bothers them then they're gonna then you gotta stop (laughs) right Right. but otherwise you don't so um i guess to give you a little bit more clarification um perhaps once the song gets big enough how does the payout then get worked out? Well, it depends on whether you've cleared the sample before or not. Um, if you've cleared the sample before, you know, when you clear a sample, you you pay a royalty or you give up, for example, you give up part of the intellectual property percentages. Um, the thing is, if you, if you are caught, if you put out a record, um, if you're caught with your hand in the cookie jar, they can cut your hand off if they want. Um, case in point, my personal experience with it was with Decisive, who um, arguably came to me to produce his Juno-nominated record Vaudeville, ostensibly because he had been sued for the previous record um, for copyright infringement, and he needed somebody that could make hip-hop records without sampling, and I was one of those people. Um, but what happened to him was, you know, he made this he made this record. Uh, the song in particular was it was called Nobody with a Notepad, and it was it sampled like sixteen full bars of Lamont Dozier's. Um, I, I don't know. It's something like Notepad. There's Notepads in the title. I can't remember the song name, but I mean, it was wholesale. It was just like literally sampling sixteen full bars and putting drums on it, and rhyming on it. Now, mm-hmm. the thing the thing to note about this was he wasn't sued for putting the record out. He wasn't sued for performing it. 
He wasn't sued for putting the video out. He wasn't sued for the Juno nomination for it. He was he got caught. He got he got a, a copyright season desist because he entered a SoCan songwriting award contest with a song that he didn't really write, if we're thinking about it right <laughs> yeah. correctly. Yeah. So this gets back to what I was talking about before with the mediums, the message. It's like, yeah, you want to put out a record, do it. Sample, fine. But if you're licensing it for film and television, probably not a good idea to sample records yeah. in certain situations. So again, it's really dumb of him and them to like submit a song that has a huge sample in it to SoCan, <laughs> for Christ's sake. And they won a $5,000 SoCan songwriting award. Um, that's funny. Huge red flags all over that play, yeah. and um, and so yeah, they got a cease and desist order. Now here's the crazy thing: it's one song on the record, right? Yeah. So initially, what happens is they say, okay, well, you've got to pull that song from all the digital services. Okay, easy enough. Um, you've got to pull because it it's in all your hard copies as well. You've got to you've got to recall all your hard copies and destroy each one of them, and You've got to prove that you've done it. So, yeah, sorry. You want me to film myself burning hundreds of copies of my album and sending you a video of it to prove that I've destroyed the the the, the actual you know uh, the, the actual evidence. merchandise. So that's crazy. That is bizarre. It gets more bizarre because they, okay. then they say if it's a single, well, what's the purpose of a single? The purpose of a single is to sell the record. So they say, well, you used our song to sell your record so we want all the money you made from the record because you used our song to sell all the your money? whole record yeah then oh, it gets cutting off his hand they're cutting off his arm well they take everything but it gets worse <laughs> the oh, last no. thing they do and this is the real this is the this is the one that's just like the lawyer you know now my father's a lawyer so whatever but like the, this the how they get their bonus the fucking you know conceptual gymnastics they do here they say Lamont Dozier is an artist whose catalog is worth millions of dollars. And his association with your album has demeaned and devalued our brand and therefore demeaned the value of a multi-million dollar catalog of intellectual property to the tune of make, make up a number, just add digits, like just add zeros. Like they can fuck. It's like, it's like emotional it's like emotional distress. Oh, you owe me $40 million. It's like you make up a number, you know? Um, Bro. It's bad. It's really bad. That's terrifying. It's terrifying. So it's not a, it's not a road that you want to go down. Yeah. But it's a road yeah. that you can avoid if you are yeah. smart and, you know. Be strategic. Yeah. 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 Beautiful. I want to touch on touring a little bit before we wrap things up. When touring... Why do you think you were able to play in the locations that you did? Does that make sense? Uh, <clears throat> sure. Um, well, I mean, my my touring. So you know, at one point I was doing, I was on average 150 shows a year for six, seven years. Five, six years, yeah. And um, that was Canada, the states, and Europe, predominantly. And of course, I've been asked over the years, like, why didn't you go to Asia? Why didn't you go to Australia? And I'm, the answer to my, that question is always, book me, motherfucker. Like, you know, <laughs> um, 
you know, like I, you have a friend in Japan that's like, why don't you ever come to Japan? I'm like, Let's bro, why go. don't you fucking book me, bro? Like, what is this? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I'm not just going to fly to Japan, man. You know, anyway, it's funny. But, um, you know, and I have, I've been offered, I, I was offered a tour in Asia uh, a couple years ago and I was like, just the numbers. I was like, no, man, like, and, and listen, look, like you, you know, you do a show in Vietnam somewhere, you can't sell a shirt in a small in, in a smaller city in Vietnam for twenty five dollars American because they don't make twenty five dollars American a week, so mm. uh, you know it, it's like it's difficult to make some of those things work, you know, and uh, yes. and that's not you know again it's not a judgment or a knock or anything it's just like you're in different you're in different worlds you're you know it's harder to go those places and plus anytime you go to a new market it's tougher it's it's an uphill battle so you need legwork and marketing and you need to target these places right um and so for me you know i i'm looking at my analytics and i'm going okay the states in europe those are those are just naturals um english speaking areas of the world just generally um although i've been really lucky because of the instrumental stuff i think another thing you know europe is really into true school stuff there you know like there's a lot of legacy hip-hop acts that can still go there and pack venues and they, that they can't do in the states yeah. Um, so, you know, definitely Europe is, is into what, what I do and, and the artists that I would roll with. Um, but I got to, I mean, I got to say like, I've been off the road. I committed to being off the road after last summer because a lot of the bookings in the States were, it was getting harder. Like the West coast run we did a couple, well, it was three years ago now, but it was tough, man. It was a really, it was tough to book. It, it, it wasn't very successful. It was like, um, and, you know, when things start to get harder, like things are supposed to get easier, you know, the more you do them. And when things start to get harder, it's like, okay, I'm either doing something wrong here or, you know, this well is dry or, you know, I don't know what it is. But, um, yeah, so, you know, but I've been lucky and I've been really lucky being able to tour those places and, and, and being asked back and, and yeah. you know, to see markets build and, and things like that. Interesting. I know obviously people aren't touring very much today, but someone might listen to this in the future. and. What are any tips that you may have for young artists that are starting the tour life? Because oftentimes people go crazy doing it. Yeah, I think um, I think the biggest thing is that, generally speaking, the music business is it's entertainment business is smoke and mirrors, right? And so there's this idea, there's this kind of duality between the myth and the reality, and you're inevitably you're trying to you're trying to turn the you're trying to build up the smoke and mirrors so that you can translate it into real stuff like um you know like you know like for example i go to one of my first tours in the states with ghetto socks you know we drove eight hours to chicago to play in front of three people at 5 30 in the afternoon it was ridiculous and you know ghetto socks had done this like facebook poster of us it looked great and it's like you know the show was terrible it was awful we lost money it was i was like awful i felt terrible i was uh it was brutal and then we get home and everyone's like, yo, you played Chicago, bro. That's crazy, man. Like, yo, you were in Brooklyn. And I'm like, oh, I see. So now I charge more, I charge more in my studio rates, you know? So you're levying, you're always levying the myth to kind of create the reality. Now, the thing to remember right. is, this is the crucial part, is that the further disparate those things are, the more difficult it is to maintain mentally, physically, financially, everything. So you've got to try to keep them as close as you can. And that means if you're going to blow something up, if you're going to make it look like you're doing some crazy stuff, 
you better you better know how to flip it into real stuff you know right because you we can curate our our instagram feeds all we want but if you get booked at a show and 10 people show up and it's it's a wash you know you're going to get exposed real quick you know if 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 you're getting all your likes from russian bots it's not going to you know what i mean like that's not going to work you know you're going to no. mess up your analytics anyway so yeah. you've really got to keep those things as close together but you know bolster one but keep keep them tethered because if you don't you'll fall through the cracks and i've seen you it happen in so brewers yeah it's bad and it happens it happens yep i agree <sighs> i've seen it happen man it's it's you know like holding my i was holding a torment like we're in vienna and i'm holding him and he's weeping uncontrollably and i'm i'm holding him and i'm like he's falling apart and i'm like i don't know what to do for him it was break- heartbreaking, man. Heartbreaking. Yeah, it's not so. for everyone. But on that note, I think it's a fantastic <laughs> way to end. Do you have any final words, Fresh Kills? Nah, well, follow me on Instagram and Twitter and everything else, at Fresh Kills, F-R-E-S-H-K-I-L-S. Uh, Freshkills.com, coming very soon. Keep your eyes peeled for that. Um, beautiful, beautiful. The Solar Record's coming. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just thank you guys for having me, man. I appreciate it. And, um, yeah, the show's great. And you guys are doing a great job. And, um, you know, grumpy old, grumpy sound guy crew for life, son. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. That's hilarious. Thank you so much for those kind words. I want to give our listeners a very nice shout out. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's always a pleasure having you join us. Shout out to Prevail Music Group. The studio is beautiful. Every time I'm here, I enjoy myself so much. Uh, The staff is also very welcoming. Shout out to the grumpy sound guy. You did your best today. I can't ask for any more than that. And then, of course, most definitely, thank you so much for your time, your energy, fresh kills. We out. Thank you for listening. If you found any value in this episode and you want to learn more from our content, check out our website at goproduce.ca. If you're on Instagram, check out our handle at go.produce. If you're on YouTube, subscribe. If you're on Spotify, hit download. If you're on Apple Music, leave a review. This will all help us grow our community. I'm Big Lou, and this is Go Produce. Go Produce.